Aren't the decorations lovely? I feel very festive this morning. Um, I just, it just makes me want to say Merry Christmas. And actually, I purposefully didn't wear my red shirt because if I would have wore my red shirt, you would have expected me to say, ho, 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 <laughs> Merry Christmas. In fact, after first service, I had three kids want to sit on my lap and they had to start. <laughs> no, I don't have a part-time job playing Santa Claus, so. The claims and the life of Jesus has been a controversial subject uh, since he came into this world some 2,000 years ago. There's been controversy and confusion raging for all of this time. In fact, I even heard that there was some confusion and some controversy in the children's ministry. And uh, it seems that the, the, the minister, the a Sunday school minister teacher uh, posed this question to her class. She said, class, what's brown and furry, has a bushy tail, lives in a tree and stores nuts for the winter? And little Johnny in the back raised his hand. And she said, Johnny, do you have an answer? He says, well, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel to me. <laughs> so you can see this controversy reaches even, even our elementary level. Every, every major world religion has some account of who Jesus was. Most of them consider Jesus to be uh, an important religious figure, and almost every religion makes some effort to account for his existence and his teaching. Even secular scholars study the life of Jesus. CNN, uh, the news channel, uh, did a special here a while back, uh, a series called Finding Jesus that explored the historical Jesus. And so we see even in, in the secular world the interest in, in knowing about Jesus. Time Magazine listed Jesus as the number one in the top 100 of history's most influential people. And so few across the world, few, regardless of religious affiliation, few deny that Jesus walked on this earth, but most all refute his claims to be God in the flesh. Uh, we look at religions like Islam, which is second in popularity to Christianity as far as worldwide numbers. Uh, Islam puts Jesus in a position of a respect, and they reverence him, uh, saying that he was a great prophet and a miracle worker. Judaism, uh, the very people that... that uh, the Messiah came from, uh, they confirmed that Jesus was indeed uh, a historical figure. Uh, they confirmed that his mother was named Mary. Uh, they confirmed that he was a miracle worker. They say that in Judaism. Uh, they even confirmed that he was crucified on the cross. But they deny his resurrection and they deny his deity. The Hindus say that Jesus was a holy man and a wise teacher, and they list him in their long list of multiple deities. Uh, they think sometimes that, that Jesus was a symbol of, of what humans can attain rather than being a true historical person. The Buddhists see Jesus as a very enlightened man and a very wise teacher, but again, deny his deity. It's interesting to note that even those religions that predate Jesus' earthly ministry, even those religions uh, feel compelled to account for Jesus in one way or the other, okay? So uh, it, it, those are just some important facts to understand. This is what C.S. Lewis 
says in his book, Mere Christianity, about the claims of Jesus. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Today we begin a new four-part series that will conclude on Christmas Eve. And this, this series is called Jesus I Am. And today, today's sermon is looking at Jesus' claim to be the I Am, to be God in the flesh. The video that we watched used the word incarnation. That just means Jesus coming in the flesh, fully God fully man. So that's, that's uh, what we're going to be speaking about today. And our focus for today is this. And, and I, I know you're already reading that, but let me just say this. This might sound stark, but this is a truth and a reality of Scripture. What you do with Jesus's claims determines your eternal destiny. What you do with Jesus's claims determines your eternal destiny. Here's some facts. The facts state that 32% of the world's population embraces Christianity. That's 2.3 billion people that embrace Christianity. I'm not saying that all those people embrace Christ as God incarnate, but, the, but call themselves Christian. And the facts show that Christianity continues to grow even in the face of severe and increasing persecution. Okay, in 2016, over 90,000 people were, were martyred for their faith in Christ. They suffered death because of their faith in Christ. And these, these statistics are very sobering when we think about those kind of things. But the single most important issue above and beyond the statistics is what you do and what I do personally with the claims of Jesus. Much more important than statistics and research and articles, what you do with what Jesus and who Jesus says he is. The Bible, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the story of who God is and what his desire is for his creation. That's what the Bible is. It's God's story revealing himself to mankind. Our primary text today is gonna be in the Gospel of John. And interestingly enough, John... Uh, 23 times in his gospel uses the term I am, records Jesus's I am statements 23 times. And seven of those times, uh, he uses metaphors to describe Jesus's character and his saving relationship towards the world. Here's the seven. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. And over the next couple weeks, we're going to explore several of those I am statements from the Gospel of John. And interestingly enough, John tells us in his Gospel, he uses that expression, quotes Jesus 23 times, Jesus saying, I am. And he tells us in his gospel the specific reason for writing that gospel, and I believe including 
that many statements about who Christ said he was. And he says this in chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That was John's purpose. That was the very purpose behind the Gospel of John. That's why I believe when, when people come to me and, and that, are, that are maybe uh, investigating the faith or maybe they're a new believer and they say, hey, Doug, where should we start reading God's Word? Where should we start in the Bible? I always say, read the Gospel of John because the Gospel of John does a really good job describing who Jesus is and revealing his character. For those of you that are taking notes, we're gonna, there's an outline in, you were handed today and, and we're gonna fill in the first blank. And the first blank is his claim, okay? And uh, I'll ask you to open your Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible today, there's some chair Bibles in front of you, maybe, or open your phone or open your scroll or whatever you, you brought today to, to look at. Those chair Bibles in front of you, if you don't have a Bible, take that chair Bible, uh, put your name in it and take it home and, and it's yours, it's our gift to you. But page 747 is where we're gonna start in that. And I wanna fill in a little context. We don't have the time this morning to completely flesh out all the context on all the stuff that we're gonna be talking about, but I wanna give you enough that you get a sense of what's happening here. So uh, in John chapter eight, um, we see Jesus entering a, a quite a lengthy discourse with, with some Pharisees and some religious Jews at that time, okay? And he declares to them in this chapter um, that he was the light of the world. And he tells them that if they follow him, they will no longer be in darkness, but they'll have the light of life. He also tells them that if they believe that he's who he says he is, and if they believe in the truths that he's proclaiming, that they would be free from their bondage from sin. But we also see in these verses that they refuse to believe Jesus' words. In fact, in, in verse 53, which prompts the question that Jesus is gonna answer for us this morning, they, they ask Jesus, they say, who do you make yourself out to be? Who, and, and I believe that there was a sarcastic tone in that. Just who do you think you are? Who do you claim to be? And in verse 58, which I think we have on the screen, Jesus answered them. And he said, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Him. And so, in the story, that's where the rock throwing started. It says that those Jews reacted to his claim by picking up rocks, and they were going to stone him because they knew quite well what Jesus was talking about. There was no uncertainty at all in their minds as to what he had to say, okay? He was claiming to be equal to God. He was claiming to be God in the flesh, he was claiming to be the same I am that appeared to Moses in the burning bush that we read about in Exodus chapter three, verse 14. Moses was being called and sent to, to deliver the people, the, the Israelites from bondage in Egypt. And, and, and in the burning bush appearance, Moses questioned, and, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, he said, who should I tell them? They're gonna ask me who sent me. When I, when I tell them who sent me, what should I say? And God answered, I am the I am. I am. And so um, uh, that was their explanation. And so uh, even though Jesus was not yet 50 years old, he was declaring that he was the eternal God. He is saying that uh, he is the one who is, who was, and who will always be. He was proclaiming to be 
God in the flesh. And for that claim, they wanted to kill him. But as we see in these verses, in God's perfect timing, Christ walked through the mist. This particular version, uh, the ESV that I'm looking at, says he hid himself. He didn't sneak away and hide himself. He supernaturally walked through the midst of them because it was not yet his time. In God's perfect timing, however, they would use his claims to convince the Romans to crucify him because of his claims, because he called himself the I am and made himself equal with God, God in the flesh. Now, the concept of I am is difficult in our language to understand what that means. And I think the Apostle Paul does the best job explaining what that means. And we see that in Colossians, where we see both the definition of I am, what, what that means, what that claim is, and also what God's plan is for mankind's redemption. So if you want to bring that verse up out of Colossians, we'll read that. This first part is, this is, this is a really good New Testament description or illustration of what the I am is, okay? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And then the rest of the verses is, his plan for mankind, where it says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross and you and me and everybody who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all the creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Boy, that's a profound, that's a mouthful. That's some profound verses in there describing Jesus as the I am and describing God's plan for mankind's redemption. So, Number two on your outline there, if you're filling in the blanks, is his plan. We've looked at his claims, and now let's look at his plan. And we'll, look at the, we'll, we'll reread those Colossians verses about his plan. This is what God's plan is for mankind. So if you want to bring up those other Colossians verses. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things. We're part of that all things, okay? Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, we were enemies of God. Christ has reconciled us. He's made, we've made peace with him. Uh, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. So that's God's plan. We see his, his claims, and that's God's plan for mankind, to bring peace between creation and the creator, to restore our created purpose back to us through Christ and him crucified is what that verse says. So God's plan from the beginning of time was to clothe himself in flesh and come to this world. 
That was not an afterthought. Don't think that God had this wonderful plan. He created Adam and Eve, and they screwed up, so, so he had to come up with another plan. That's not at all what happened, okay? God's plan was from the beginning. He knew exactly what man's response would be, okay? And so this plan was from the beginning of time. He would clothe himself in flesh, come to this world to reveal himself and his fullness, the fullness of his nature to mankind. Fully God, fully man. To live a perfect life, to go to the cross, and on the cross to take upon himself all of the sins of the world, past, present, and future. All of them. He would take those upon himself. He would rise from the dead three days later, uh, uh, proclaiming victory over sin and death, okay? And then he would ascend to heaven where he reigns forever, okay? Uh, that's his plan, okay? And and what that plan allows, it allows for us to not only have peace with God, to not only be reconciled to God, but to return to our created purpose of intimacy, of relationship with him through faith in Christ. That's God's plan for every one of his creation, okay? So we see again, we saw his claims and we saw his plan. Now, what I just talked to you about is the theology of the plan. And that's very, very, very important. But I think there's something that's possibly as, or maybe even a little bit more important. The theology is very important. But what also is important is to look at the way that God chose to reveal himself to the world. He did it in a way that only God could do it. Gail, there's a fellow by the name of Gail Irwin um, who wrote a book, and this is an older book. It's called The Jesus Style. It was written back in the... Back, when I, back in my youngster days in the 70s and so, but, but the, the book was called The Jesus Style, and, and, and this is something that he said in The Jesus Style. He says, when that first cry was heard from the stable of Bethlehem and into the care of Mary and Joseph came a wrinkled, blood-covered baby, the universe reached its turning point. For the first time, the God and creator who before had only been heard could now be seen and touched. All that he was now occupied human flesh, approachable, available, vulnerable. Yet mankind prefers the unseen, distant God. We have difficulty with the God who is living flesh. We would rather wrestle with principles, dogmas, and ideas than hear him call us to himself as a person. But God would not have it that way. Jesus, the dividing point of time, could be touched, and he put us in touch with God it is appropriate that the records show him going everywhere, touching people, even those who had been untouchable until that time. Ironically, the records also show that those he touched did not understand who he was. Even his closest followers were often uncertain. So when you think about the plan, it's a plan that I, I never would have, that, that if he said, Doug, come up with a plan that I can clothe myself in human flesh and come to the world. His plan is not the plan I would have picked. I mean, think about it. He was born in a stable. I wouldn't have picked a stable. I would have, I would have made a big, shiny, white, clean, uh, sterile hospital with the best, uh, the best obstetricians and all those folks that deliver babies. They would have been the best the world had to offer if I was going to uh, uh, bring... God himself into the world, okay? So he, he, was, he was born in a barn, born in a stable. His parents were questionable. I mean, they weren't, of, they weren't of any high social standings at all. 
So he had questionable parents. I mean, I would have picked a royal family to bring him into if, I, if the plan was left up to me, okay? Uh, his ancestry, if you think about his ancestry, it was spotty. He had a prostitute in his family line, okay? Uh, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have picked that in, in any way, okay? He was reared in a bad neighborhood, okay? Uh, kind of like, um, well, I, won't, I won't mention any, I won't mention any, any bad neighborhoods, you know? Uh, he, he had very plain looks. Does that surprise you? I mean, I know early in my, in my Christian life, I had a picture by the name of a guy by the name of Hook in my office, and, and Jesus was ruggedly handsome. He was athletic and very, very American-looking, very, you know, with the, with the hair part in the middle, the nice hair. Jesus wasn't, a, Scripture tells us that he wasn't attracted. There was nothing about his appearance that would attract people. So he had very plain looks, okay? He owned nothing, you know, go back to the looks. I mean, who would have you picked? I mean, I would have picked like Brad Pitt or something. You know, <laughs> if, you know, I mean, uh, not that I think Brad Pitt's attractive, but you know, I mean, I would have picked somebody that was attractive, you know. Uh, wow, let me see how to get out of that one. Um, he, he, he owned nothing. He owned nothing. He was poor. He was poor. I mean, Let's face it, who, who carries more influence, a very poor person or someone of high social standard and who has a lot of stuff? I mean, I wouldn't have picked a poor person, but that's what God chose to do. He surrounded himself with unattractive coworkers. I mean, the disciples were, they were a rough group. I mean, they were, they were not, I mean, they were probably, you know, when they talk about sailors cursing, and that, that's probably the kind of crew that, that these guys were to start with. I mean, they weren't an attractive or educated crowd that he was, that he was choosing to hang out uh, with. And then, finally, he died a shameful death. There was no, it was the worst way to die. It was a shameful death, okay? So you can see that his plan was completely different than the way we would have planned it as far as God presenting himself to the world. But here's the key. His plan was to reveal himself to mankind in a way that was non-threatening and non-manipulative. His desire is that our response to who he is would be honest and genuine. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, if, if, they went, if God went with Doug's plan, some of the things I talked about, it would be easy to be attracted to, to want to follow that person, okay? Because that's just the way we are as 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 human beings, but, but God did it in a different way. He wanted our response to be honest and genuine. He wanted a response of seeing him for who he is. Not for what he had, but for who he is. So if you're filling in blanks, we're at number three now, and this is our response, okay? And if you want to turn your Bibles back to John chapter eight, um, I, I'm going to look at two different responses, two very different responses to Jesus's claims of being the I am. And the first one is, again, um, out of chapter eight, and we'll read those verses out of chapter eight and see the response of the religious Jews and the Pharisees. And these are Jesus's words. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So there's a response. And, and these Jews were very familiar with scripture. They understood the prophecies of the coming Messiah. They understood that. They had a lot of information. They had a lot of head knowledge about who they thought the coming Messiah would be. And they no doubt had even seen the miracles, some of the miracles that Christ had performed. They had no doubt heard, at least maybe not firsthand, but secondhand, or firsthand in, in, rather than in person, they'd heard about the profound truths that Jesus was teaching. They knew about God, but they did not know God. They had preconceived a whole bunch, a whole pile of preconceived ideas on how the Messiah would come. And God's plan just overwhelmed them, I believe. They had so many filters on what they thought this would be. And so because of their preconceived ideas um, and because of their spiritual pride and because of their hardness of hearts, they failed to see God in the flesh standing before them. Their spiritual blindness not only caused them to reject Christ's claims, but they wanted to kill him. That's, the, that's their response. A quote, and I don't know the, the author of this quote, but it says, God never forsakes any till they have first provoked him to withdraw and will have none of him. God never forsakes any till they have first provoked him to withdraw and will have none of him. These guys chose to reject him. They provoked God to withdraw from them. And he did. He honored their decision. Okay? He didn't violate their personhood by forcing himself on them. He simply removed himself from them. That's one response. We see a contrasting response in John chapter 4. And if you want to turn there, you can. But I'll give you a, a bit of context for these verses that we're going to look at. Um, this is the story of the... Of the uh, the woman at the well. I think most of the Bibles have that as the heading of this section in chapter four. The Samaritan woman. And uh, a little context is this. First, Jesus was in a place that a religious Jew would never go. Religious Jews did not go to Samaria. They did not travel through Samaria. They did not talk to anybody from Samaria. They hated Samaria. The Samaritans were half-breeds. They were Jewish people that had intermarried. They were considered half-breeds, and they were really an outcast from the Jewish people. So the, the religious Jew, there was a lot of stuff between, that they had to go between the temple in Jerusalem and the other side of Samaria, so they wouldn't go through Samaria, which was the shortest route. They would travel way around it. That shows you the extreme of their hypocrisy. They would go way around to avoid this area. So Jesus was in a place that, that a religious Jew would never go. Second, he was speaking to a woman, which religious Jews didn't do. Okay? And especially a woman of questionable character. And the Samaritan woman was of questionable character. So that's kind of the context a little bit of the story. Jesus has a, a conversation with this woman at the well. He asks her for a drink of water. And this conversation starts. And he, Christ says, uh, uh, he offers her the living water, speaking of himself, that is eternal life. So he offers her, he said, I can, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, I can give you water that's living water, speaking of himself and eternal life. And then we jump to verse 25 um, in chapter 4. 
And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. A better, a more literal translation to that is I am. I am. Okay? And then it goes on to say, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Very different response to Jesus' claims than we saw in the last illustration. And here's an important fact to remember. This Samaritan woman and the, the, the townspeople that accepted Christ's claims, they, were, they had knowledge of the Jewish coming Messiah. They had knowledge of that, okay? They understood that. And, and yet we see Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman, and I, I have no doubt to many of the townspeople, brought these people to a point of understanding that they were sinners in need of a Savior. They understood that it wasn't the Samaritan religious practices, it wasn't the Jewish religious practices that could save them. But the only thing that they could put their hope in was faith in the promised Messiah. And Jesus says, I am the Messiah. I am God in the flesh. I am standing in your midst, God in the flesh. And it tells us in Psalm 59, uh, you will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. God will never reject someone who comes to him confessing their need, confessing their need for a Savior. That's what that verse speaks of. Again, these Samaritans accepted Jesus' claims to be the I am. They needed a, a, a Savior. They didn't have all those preconceived notions that the religious Jews did that prevented them from knowing and accepting God's plan for their salvation. So we see two distinctly different uh, responses to Jesus' claim, which takes us to the last point on your outline. Plan A or plan B, there is no plan Again, as we see the contrast and responses, what we see in those, and what I believe very firmly, is there's only two choices. There's only two choices. We can either accept the claim that Jesus is the I am, that Jesus is God incarnate, Jesus is God in the flesh, that he is the, the uh, image of the invisible God, that he is the firstborn of all creation, that he is the creator of heavens and earth. He is before all things. He does hold all things together. He is the preeminent, preeminent one. That's plan A, okay? Plan B is, or we can reject his claims. It's that simple. There is no middle ground. There is no proverbial fence to sit on. There's only those two choices, okay? And even if you're not throwing rocks at him, your non-decision is a decision to reject him. Okay, I don't mean that to sound harsh, but that's the truth of the gospel message that, that you, have, you can accept or reject. And an undecided vote is to reject him. Jesus says in John 14, 6, do we have that for the screen? He's, I guess not. I am the way. I am. 
There it is. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a narrow path that God has, has identified as the way to eternal life through Christ and Christ alone. Christ talked about the narrow gate and the straight path, okay? Those that choose that will be with him for eternity. The broad way is plan B, and many choose it, it tells us in scriptures. Again, Gail Irwin from the Jesus Style says, we make so few genuine decisions in life, most of the choices we make are affected by outside forces and demands. But when it comes to the most important decision in life, our decision about God, Jesus seeks only a genuine one. So we are approached in a way that lovingly frees us to make a decision genuinely. We can accept or reject. God refuses to violate our personhood and our power to choose. That is love. That's the definition of love. And I believe that, that we are a truly... Uh, blessed people in, in the day and age that we are because we have, we have the complete and full revelation of who God is in his word. This is the complete revelation of God in his word. Genesis to Revelation, the complete revelation of who God is. It tells us also in, in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the word, again, speaking of the I am, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was, nothing, was anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We'll be celebrating that on Christmas Day here in just two or three weeks. So the Word became flesh. And I'll end with this. We all will have to respond personally to the question that Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16, 15 and 16. And when we answer that question, back to our focus, what we need to remember is that, that your decision will determine your eternal destiny. What you do with the claims of Christ will, will affect your eternal destiny. And God's heart towards you, his desire for you, is that you not just know information about him, but that you know him. You know him as the God that has come in the flesh to reveal himself to mankind. That you believe that he's who he claims to be. And that your answer would be the same answer that the Apostle Peter gave when the question was asked him. Do we have that on the screen? He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And this is a question for all of us today. Who do you say, Christ is saying, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, professing Jesus as the I am. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful that uh, you have a wonderful plan for your creation. That, Father, from the beginning of time, you knew that, uh, that mankind would sin and be separated from you because of their sin. And, and in your perfect wisdom, uh, 
you came in the flesh, living a perfect life, taking our sins upon you on the cross, and uh, then rising from the dead so that we could be set back in right relationship with you. Father, we rejoice and we thank you for that great demonstration of love. And Lord, I pray today if there's any here that uh, uh, have not made that decision for you, uh, uh, whether they've rejected you or just have been undecided, I pray, Father, that you would be ministering to their hearts, that, Lord, you would break through any hardness of heart or any, any preconceived ideas of what it means to believe, and, Father, that you would draw them to yourself by your Spirit. And, Father, for uh, those that are walking with you, that are professing relationship with you, Father, I pray that you would challenge us to live lives that validates each day that we believe in you and who you say you are, that our lives would demonstrate Christ-likeness, that we would live lives worthy of the price that you paid for us. Again, Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name.